Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and in Eureka on KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Groves, KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio and Detour Talk, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm sure you have heard by now about this horrific terrorist attack by a white supremacist at uh, two different mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand by now, as of airtime, 49 have been announced dead, dozens of others injured and fighting for their lives. Just a horrific day in uh, New Zealand, a horrific dark day in, by the way, Christchurch, a town that has had quite a few disasters and tragedies in recent years. Yeah, they had that huge earthquake. Yep. I think it was 2013 that killed many people, destroyed lots of historic buildings. It's uh, It's been a bad time. It has been uh, bad indeed. <laughs> uh, and in truth, while uh, we may discuss it more in, in detail on a later show, I, I really have no interest in giving attention to this guy. This creep, this monster, um, this far right wing supremacist uh, and and the reasons for his supposed the supposed reasons for his attack. I uh, it's being covered everywhere today. I don't need to give him more airtime. Uh, plus, you know, it comes on a day when there is actually some hopeful news around the world, all around the globe, uh, that I want to discuss in a moment. Uh, and plus, plus, I've got uh, plenty of other news that's uh, disturbing enough, frankly, to share with you today. We'll be joined in a bit by Stephen Rosenfeld of the Independent Media Foundation's Voting Booth Project, where he has been really just about the only one in the nation doing this, incredibly enough, with everyone all over, of course, the 2020 presidential race, the horse race aspect of it. The track conditions in 2020 
are the thing that we like to keep our eyes on uh, mostly. And uh, Steve Rosenfeld is really the only one who I know who has really been uh, reporting on what I see as an absolute disaster in the making for the Democratic Party's 2020 caucuses in Iowa and in Nevada and elsewhere, where some form of online or remote or telephonic or smartphone voting will now be included in the already hectic caucus process in uh, in states that still hold caucuses run by private state political parties rather than primaries, which are run by public uh, state and local election officials. It is still early, but the first caucus is now less than a year away. And I am of the mind, based in no small part on Steve's reporting, that uh, this could be a disaster in the making. Make this one of those shows that you will post it at bradblog.com, as we always do. When, when we do, bookmark it. This might be one of those I told you so shows. One of those early warnings. I, I, yeah, I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. But mark it down. All right. So all of that is disturbing enough news uh, for one day. Um but we've we've got some encouraging news that I would I would prefer to focus on here for a moment because I think this is really good news and a lot of this is going to get lost I suspect given what happened in New Zealand uh, today. But from the South Pacific to the edge of the Arctic Circle, students are mobilizing by word of mouth and social media, and they are skipping class on Friday to protest what they see as the failures by their governments to take tough action against global warming. Friday's rallies were one of the biggest international climate change actions yet, according to AP, involving hundreds of thousands of students in more than 100 co uh, countries around the globe. These coordinated school strikes were inspired by 16-year-old Swedish activist Greta Thunberg, who began holding solitary demonstrations outside the Swedish parliament last year. Basically, she just decided, I'm not going to school. I'm going to sit here and protest outside the parliament for climate action. Until you guys listen to me. <laughs> yes. she did. I mean, a story of, you know, uh, one person making a difference. Uh, she, there are, you know, photos of her just sitting there. Sitting oh, yeah. there on school strike with a little sign with her little hand-drawn sign in the cold. Since then, uh, the weekly protests have now snowballed uh, from a handful of cities uh, where other students began striking as well, fueled by dramatic headlines about the impact of climate change during the lifetime of these students. Scientists have uh, backed these protests with thousands in Britain, Finland, Germany and the U.S. signing petitions in support of these students. Thunberg has now been nominated, as we mentioned on our previous broadcast, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. She said at a rally in Stockholm that the world faces, quote, an existential crisis, the biggest crisis humanity has ever faced. And still it has been ignored for decades, she said. Adding, and you know who you are, <laughs> you that have ignored this. Students across the uh, warming globe pleaded for their lives on Friday for uh, the future and the planet, demanding tough action on climate change. Borders, uh, languages and religions do not separate us, said eight year old Havana Chapman Edwards, who calls herself the tiny diplomat. <laughs> 
She spoke to hundreds of protesters at the U.S. Capitol on Friday, saying, Today we are telling the truth and we do not take no for an answer. She is eight. Across the globe, uh, protests big and small reportedly urged politicians to act against climate change while highlighting local environmental problems in uh, in each of the various protests. For example, in India's capital of New Delhi, school children protested inaction on climate change and demanded that authorities tackle rising air pollution levels in the country which often far exceed World World Health Organization limits. In Paris, teenagers thronged the streets around the domed Pantheon building. Some criticized French President Emmanuel Macron, who sees himself as the guarantor of the landmark 2015 Paris Climate Accord, which Donald Trump has announced the U.S. will pull out of unless the U.S. decides to pull out of Donald Trump. <laughs> you mean is vote, that uh, vote yeah, out that's Donald what I'm Trump. trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh he has been uh, Macron has been criticized by activists for being uh too business friendly and not ambitious enough in uh his own efforts to reduce emissions in France. In South Africa's capital of Pretoria, a protester held a sign reading you'll miss the rains down in Africa. Oh, wow. Experts say that Africa with That's its, a song for people who yes, don't know. Uh, with its uh, population of more than one billion, they are expected to be hardest hit by global warming, even though it contributes the least to the greenhouse gas emissions that cause it. Down in Africa, thousands marched in rainy Warsaw and other Polish cities to demand a ban on burning coal, a major source of carbon dioxide. Some wore face masks as they carried banners that read, Make love, not CO2. Well, that's a bit cheeky for school kids, isn't it? <laughs> In Madrid, more than 50 other Spanish uh, and and 50 other Spanish cities drew thousands to these protests on Friday. The country, of course, is vulnerable to rising sea levels and rapid desertification. In Berlin, police said as many as 20,000 protesters gathered in a downtown square, 20,000 waving signs such as March now or swim later. They then marched over uh, through the German capital to Chancellor Angela Merkel's office in San Francisco. About a thousand demonstrators descended on the local offices of Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, wanting passage of the massive Green New Deal. The uh, resolution proposed in the U.S. Congress just a few weeks ago by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and they were chanting, uh, climate change is not a lie. We won't let our planet die. Thank you, kids. In St. Paul, Minnesota, about a thousand students gathered before the state capitol chanting, stop denying the earth is dying. Azalea Danes, a student at the Bronx High School of Science, was was not a climate activist, she said, until about two weeks ago when she read about Thunberg's efforts now she's one of the top organizers of the youth climate strike in New York City, where she was hoping thousands would show up to rally on Friday, which uh, she said shows how these protests are organized from the bottom up. Some audio from Friday's protest in Sydney, Australia, compiled by uh, Project TV, underscored the bottom up nature of what is going on here, including a response to their education minister who was who's all for the protests, 
So long as they happen on a Saturday or a Sunday or some other time that wouldn't be inconvenient to him uh, and, and the adults. And the adults. Of course, he wouldn't even be paying attention to these uh, protests, frankly, if they did not include a school walkout. Here's some some of that audio. I am sick of the lack of action taken by politicians to tackle climate change. My name is Shia Huck. I'm 16 years old and I'm skipping school because this is the fight of our lives. This isn't just about talking anymore. This is about acting. Politicians aren't standing up for our futures, so we're doing it ourselves. Leaving school during school hours to protest is not something that we should encourage, especially when they are being encouraged to do so by green political activists. With all due respect to a federal education minister, we're not being led by greenies or any other political party whatsoever. We're here because we want safe futures, we want sustainable futures. What a crazy idea. Sustainable <laughs> futures. I'll tell you what, uh, Des, I, maybe I'm just emotional today, but reading uh, these stories and hearing about these kids standing up. It's very inspiring, yeah. very encouraging because, you know, they are a force. They actually, I think, in population outnumber the baby boomers demographically. So, Well, they better be a force. They are a force. Because they're going to be stuck with, with the mess that we have left them. Yeah, it's going to be their job to clean everything up. A professor of engineering at Berlin's University of Applied Sciences, Volker Quanshing, said it was uh, easy for politicians to belittle the students. That's why he said they need our support. If we do nothing, then parts of this planet could become uninhabitable by the end of the by the end of the century. Some politicians praise the students as well. Danish Prime Minister Lars, or Lars Loke Rasmussen showed up at a protest in Copenhagen and tweeted uh, Friday, quote, we must listen to the youth, especially when they're right. The climate must be one of our top priorities. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said he was inspired by the students' uh, uh, climate strikers to call a special summit now in September to deal with what he calls the climate emergency. He told The Guardian uh, that my generation has failed to respond properly to the dramatic challenge of climate change. This is deeply felt by young people. No wonder they are angry. Minnesota's Democratic uh, freshman Congresswoman uh, Elon Omar uh, spoke. Was this in D.C.? Yes, uh, this was uh, in D.C. Her daughter, her teen daughter, was one of the main organizers of the D.C. climate strike protest. Congressman Omar had this to say. I'm here because we must not let the current administrations prioritize corporate interests over the health of all of our communities. Yes, we are at a dark hey, moment in our history, but we are the light that can bring change. We need to invest in clean energy future that puts us on a path to 100% renewable energy. Instead, we are letting the fossil fuel company CEOs dictate how we treat our planet. why I'm introducing a bill to end the 20 billion dollars in corporate welfare fuel corporations receive each year. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, there are those subsidies that still oh, yeah. go to the fossil fuel industry, aren't they? Even while uh, these right-wingers have been telling us that uh, renewable energy uh, can't, can't exist without subsidies. Yeah, the oil industry and the coal industry have been receiving subsidies for 100 years. Professor Quanching in, in Ber- Berlin, uh, one of the more than uh, 23,000 German-speaking scientists to sign a letter of support this week for the kids, said uh, Germany would st- should stop using all fossil fuels by 2040. He said this is going to require radical measures, and there isn't the slightest sign of that happening yet. Meanwhile, back in Stockholm, Greta Thunberg, who helped kick off all of this, predicted that students will not let up their climate protests. She said there, there are a crisis in, in front of us that we have to live with, that we will have to live with for all of our lives, our children, our grandchildren, and all future generations. She said, we are on strike because we do want a future. Good for her. So do I. Quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast as we fight for that future every day right here. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. You know, I took a shot at Republicans there in the uh, previous segment. Uh, They deserve it. Yep. Uh, but the fact is, you know, if we're going to save the planet, if we're going to save uh, the climate, uh, it, it's got to be an effort by all people of all parties. Yes. And it's going to take literally everyone. It 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 does. And this is one of the reasons, you know, we, we talk for years at Brad Blog and, and here on the show that the things we cover are not about right and left, but about right and wrong. Right. Good God, if there is anything that is uh, more right than saving the planet for humanity, I, I don't know what it is. And not just the humanity, but for all living things, everything that comes after us for centuries, that's that's where we are. But to do that, we have to have accountability. We have to have uh, democracy. We have to have elections that we can all have some kind of confidence in. So, yes, democracy is another one of those Really? Not about right and left, but about right and wrong issues. And uh, it does lead to strange bedfellows. And we've been talking for weeks and months now about what's going on in Georgia, what went on there during their election last year, the voter suppression that went on, the voting systems that nobody can oversee, the 175,000 votes that seem to have disappeared in the lieutenant governor's race that we are still looking into But the fight that we've been talking about in recent weeks is the new voting system they're moving to in Georgia, where the, yes, Republican governor, uh, former secretary of state, now governor, uh, has been pushing for these new unverifiable touchscreen voting systems for the entire state of Georgia. 
to be purchased from a company uh, who his new deputy chief of staff actually uh, used to be the top lobbyist for. Go figure, company by the name of ESNS. But this, too, is a fight that is ultimately not about right or left, but about right and wrong. We've been talking with Marilyn Marks a lot about this fight to get hand-marked paper ballots in Georgia, not these touchscreen systems that now Governor Brian Kemp and his uh, new Secretary of State want. Marilyn Marks happens to be a, uh, a Republican, uh, a registered Republican who's not all that happy with her party these days. But uh, in addition, uh, FreedomWorks, the far-right uh, Donald Trump-loving group FreedomWorks, has also been pressing the uh, state of Georgia to move to hand-marked paper ballots. They see these $100 million, $150 million that Kemp wants to spend on these unverifiable new systems as a huge waste of money. In a statement recently, FreedomWorks said purchasing and requiring all voters to use electronic ballot marking devices will be a needless waste of taxpayer dollars and will provide an inferior voting experience for Georgia citizens. And introducing online voting will place our troops' uh, votes at risk. Yeah, they want to do that as well. They are respectfully urging the uh, the state legislature to vote no on HB 316, which is in the final stages. It's been approved in both the House and the Senate. I think there's going to be one more vote in the House. Well, Lieutenant Colonel Tony Schaefer, the, a national security advisor to Donald Trump's 2020 campaign, is in Georgia right now trying to convince the Republicans who have supported this measure in both houses in the state legislature to rethink it. Here was uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Tony Schaefer just a few days ago talking about this crazy idea of going to ballot marking devices. I'm Tony Schaefer, uh, part of the Trump 2020 team and the president of the London Center for Policy Research here at the state capital of Georgia, dealing with the legislature on some key issues regarding House Resolution 316 which has to do with their voting machines. I have worked cyber operations since the 1990s, where I ran a unit called Stratus Ivy, which actually was the DOD element working a lot of the uh, special operations uh, and collection issues relating to cyberspace before cyber became a big issue. Uh, and this is something that I've continued to, to do, is consult with and work with members of the Department of Defense and other entities regarding security of digital processes and networks. The issue is converting from touch screens, which are completely vulnerable to hack, uh, converting into paper ballots. The issue technology challenges regarding the current concept of using a touch screen to generate a form, which is part of the verification process, and then you get to the paper ballot. So, uh, as a security expert, someone who studied this, uh, there's some real issues with having that technology involved. So, that's part of the issue. The second issue is cost. Uh, while they've been going through and dealing with the technical aspects, they've lost sight, I believe, of the cost related to having a touch screen with a vendor involved versus having simple hand-filled out paper ballots, which you buy the machines and you use them every election with very little uh, additional expense. So that's it. That's it. Those are the two issues. Uh, we believe, uh, after reviewing all the, the different issues, that the best way to go is simply a hand-written ballot. No technology, you're minimizing technology in the loop because the more digital technology there is, 
the more chance there is for hacking, for some level of not modification, which does not reflect one person, one vote, and you just want to you want to get rid of any potential for that as best you can and secure the process. So that's it. Uh, we're hoping that we have uh, made a good uh, series of meetings and messages to the folks who have to deal with this. And we always stand by to help give them good advice to secure the election. So, sorry about the sound there. Hopefully you got the idea. That was a cybersecurity expert and national security advisor to Donald Trump's 2020 campaign, Lieutenant Colonel Tony Schaefer, calling for hand-marked paper ballots in the state of Georgia. So that fight continues in Georgia for hand-marked paper ballots that can actually be overseen by the public. Also, in a number of other states like Pennsylvania, Texas, Iowa, New Jersey, who are all moving to these or thinking about moving to these uh, unverifiable touchscreen ballot marking devices. And even here in my own county of Los Angeles, where we are moving to those systems as well before 2020. But yes, good to see some at least hard right Republicans out there uh, fighting against these systems. But when it comes to... um, Their own party nomination contest next year, the Democrats are heading down a very troubling path, at least as I see it. Steve Rosenfeld has been covering the DNC's plans to add remote online voting of some sort to their caucuses next year, beginning in February in Iowa. And I don't think they have any idea the mess that they may about to be stepping into. Stephen joins us next on the broadcast to discuss that. Pay attention. This one's disturbing. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance. Now, more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. The Democratic National Committee's chief technology officer is stepping down from his role, ending a near two-year tenure during which he helped the DNC over overhaul the party's data practices and heighten its attention to digital security following the hacks that upended the 2016 election. BuzzFeed's Ruby Kramer reports that Rafi Krikorian will return to California to join a philanthropy company, according to DNC officials. He had previously served as Twitter's vice president of engineering and ran Uber's self-driving cars project before joining the Democratic Party in the summer of 2017, at a time when the DNC faced an urgent need to reimagine its internal approach to tech and cybersecurity, as Kramer describes it. One year after the release of a stolen cache of DNC emails that shook the party's national convention, party structure, and, of course, the results of the 2016 presidential election, Krikorian took the helm of a team that was still demoralized at the time by that ordeal. Krikorian promised a party-wide culture change around digital security and tech, 
During his tenure, the DNC moved its data operations in-house for the first time, taught the chair of the uh, of the DNC, Tom Perez, how to use the encrypted messaging app Signal. They instituted regular simulating uh, uh, drills to avoid email spear phishing attacks. They pressured state parties to update their own practices and hired a top Silicon Valley official from Yahoo to step in as chief security officer, which may or may not offer you confidence. Uh, since 2017, a DNC official said Krikorian grew the technology department from 14 staffers at a time when the party mostly relied on outside contractors to a team of 40 full-time employees. He departs amid a Democratic Party that is now poised to draw a record number of presidential candidates uh, who his team in uh, recent weeks has been working with to ensure that each of them is prepared to guard against foreign-sponsored hacking during the 2020 race. Krikorian will continue his work at the DNC for a short period of time as an advisor to complete some projects and... Um, his deputy will serve as acting chief technology officer while the DNC conducts a search for a full-time replacement. Perez, the chair of the DNC, said in a statement that Krikorian helped bring our technology infrastructure into the modern age, making the DNC stronger and more secure than ever before. Well, that that's good, even if it's not necessarily saying much. Uh, Perez said he leaves the DNC better equipped than ever to take on Donald Trump in 2020. Well, part of taking on Donald Trump and avoiding some of the many problems that plague Democrats during the 2016 primaries and the general election include new protocols for the way the party's nominee is to be selected. Last August, at its annual summer meeting in Chicago, the DNC dramatically reduced the power and influence of so-called superdelegates in selecting the party's presidential nominee ahead of what has, as expected, become a wide-open Democratic field, with at least 14 candidates so far now vying for the party's presidential nod in 2020. As NPR reported last August, uh, DNC members voted at that meeting last year to take away the major role of those superdelegates comprised of elected officials and other party dignitaries in selecting their nominee at, that, at the uh, Democratic Convention, now scheduled to be held in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, next year, leaving it up to the delegates selected in its state primaries and caucuses only Unless the process becomes deadlocked at the convention and can't be decided on the first round of voting, and then the superdelegates may end up playing a role. But the reforms adopted also in uh, back in August of last year also encouraged states that hold presidential caucuses run by state parties to switch to primaries administered by state and local election officials instead. Primaries are seen uh, by many as a more egalitarian way for party supporters to participate in the process. The changes require states who opt to stick with caucuses and not move to primaries uh, to add absentee participation in some way. The party was citing barriers to participation ranging from military service to child care to disability that kept many from being able to participate in caucuses. 
The proposal was adopted last August with broad support among the top leaders of the DNC, including Chair Tom Perez and Vice Chair Michael Blake. Blake said at the time, voters want us to be listening to them. And this is a way to show that we are listening, to show that we're understanding the changes that had to be made after 2016. Rallying his party ahead of national elections in 2018 and 2020, Perez told the party members gathered in Chicago, folks, what we all have in common is we're here to win elections. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, whose supporters had pushed for many of the reforms after the contentious 2016 primary, expressed approval of the reforms made last year, saying today's decision by the DNC is an important step forward in making the Democratic Party more open, democratic, and responsive to the input of ordinary Americans. Well, that all sounds very good, uh, but what about that requirement that caucus states allow somehow for absentee participation in some way? As Stephen Rosenfeld, one of the independent media institute's voting booth project reporters, uh, notes a number of state caucus organizers have been exploring the option of allowing for some form of online voting for caucus participants. Despite the many concerns of cybersecurity and voting systems experts about such technology and concerns from election integrity experts about the ability for the public to oversee results and the potential for fraud in online voting, with uh, which uh, cybersecurity experts, many of whom we've spoken to on this show over the years, have been warning for years, is in no way secure or overseeable enough to be used for voting in actual elections. Experiments in online voting in this country and others have uh, proven to be various forms of disaster over the years. Canada's political parties have been using various forms of voting over the Internet to select party slates and leadership for some years now. I recall back in March of 2012, for example, we reported at Bradblog.com on Canada's on Canada's new Democratic Party or NDP leadership vote when, according to Montreal's Gazette at the time, a large scale cyber attack involving more than 10,000 computers was responsible for online polling problems. During the weekend's uh, leadership vote, according to Seidel Canada, the company that was contracted by the party to conduct it, Seidel indicated in a statement at the time that the attack in no way compromised the sanctity of the vote. No ballots cast by bona fide NDP members were added, subtracted or changed. But that attack was an attempt to crash or slow down websites by saturating servers with bogus external communications requests that deny legitimate users access, otherwise known as distributed denial of service attacks. How do we know that no votes were compromised or added or subtracted? Well, Seidel told us they uh, that there's nothing to worry about. They're the company who was contracted, so why shouldn't we believe them? Uh, that, of course, is just one example of many online voting disasters. But I'm sure the folks at the DNC have all of this figured out in advance before they start using such systems in their crucial caucuses, which kick off first in Iowa in early February of next year. Right. 
Well, maybe, maybe not. Joining us for an early primer on where all of this is going and what the DNC must be thinking is our old friend Stephen Rosenfeld, reporter and writing fellow for Voting Booth, where he focuses on voting technology. He has also written five books on campaigns, voter suppression and voting rights, including Count My Vote, A Citizen's Guide to Voting, and his latest, Democracy Betrayed. How Superdelegates, Redistricting, Party Insiders, and the Electoral College rigged the 2016 election. Oh, Mr. Rosenfeld, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Well, hey, it's very nice to be here. Nice uh, to see you. It's good to have you here. Uh, Stephen, you wrote at, uh, at Voting Booth in a, in a story reposted by Salon in late January uh, that is giving me a lot of anxiety today, my friend. Uh, it starts, if all goes according to plans now being dra- uh, drafted, Iowa's 2020 Democratic presidential caucuses may be the biggest demonstration of and test for online voting in a single U.S. election. But before participating in Iowa's caucuses online from home or a coffee shop becomes a reality on February 3, 2020, its state Democratic Party must deploy a formidable voting infrastructure and a legion of trained operators to avoid a mix of human errors and technical issues that have marred online participation in recent Republican presidential and statewide caucuses. Now, Steve, uh, the Iowa caucuses are, by and large, a very mysterious process uh, to everybody in the country except those in Iowa who who may or may not actually understand and participate in them. So Democrats are now going to add to that confusion by allowing for thousands of outside participants. Really? This is the plan? Um, yeah, it's the plan. Well, yes, it's the goal. <laughs> we, it, it, it's the goal. Yeah. It, it's part of having the party be more um, inclusive uh-huh. and participatory, and it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's not clear how it's going to be done. We can talk about what the options are and uh-huh. what they're thinking about because it's, this is all being developed right now. But the overall goal is to bring more young people and older people who might have a hard time going out at night to these caucuses uh-huh. into the fold. And, um, and it's not just going to be, it's not just Iowa. It's yeah. going to be Nevada, which is the first Western primary mm-hmm. but those are the two biggies and um and let's, we can talk about well, ha- what they're thinking. Well, yeah, because I, I, I appreciate what they are thinking. I appreciate the reason they want to do this. Uh, but I have great concerns, as you might imagine. Uh, and, and it seems like so do you. Um, you detail some of those concerns in uh, several of your uh, recent articles. So what can... Uh, what can we or should we learn from, for example, two of the recent Republican experiments in using online voting for caucuses in Utah for the uh, 2016 presidential caucus and then more recently for the 2018 uh, GOP party caucuses? How did those go, Stephen? Well, they had some they had some they didn't go so well. Um, and, but let's talk about what they're trying to do and then we can really get it. Do this in a layered fashion. OK, the, the general approach What's happened is that the DNC Rules Committee has told state parties that they have to plan to have off-site participation. Mm-hmm. And they have to present those plans back to the Rules Committee by later this spring to be approved before 2020. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that um, now these 
elections are not the same as primaries because they're not run by government officials. They right. obviously involve political officials or political party nominees, but they are private elections. Right. So in essence, the state parties are going to rent a voting system from someone, maybe more than one system, because what, what, there, what has been talked about is uh, and what's happening now is the state parties in Iowa, Nevada, Hawaii, Maine, mm-hmm. Washington State, which has a mix of a primary and a caucus, same thing with Texas, if they're going to have these caucuses, they have to figure out how they're going to reach different voters who are not physically present. And the, the mm-hmm. caucuses are like town meetings. You know, people show up, right. and they have a ra- series of voting rounds, and um, how you would synchronize the remote participation with those voting in rounds gets complicated, but let's not go there right now. So what they're thinking about, generally in Iowa, is they're thinking about trying to use a mix of telephone voting. Now, this is where it gets fuzzy, because what kind of telephone are we talking about? We're talking about a landline, like I'm on right now talking to you, where I can push buttons, or is it going to be a mobile phone that that is over Mm Wi-Fi? They're talking about some kind of a telephone system for older folks, because that's seen as being more friendly to that demographic, Mm -hmm. and yet they also want to have something that will bring younger people in, and obviously younger people don't don't even know what a push-button telephone (laughs) is. (laughs) So the question then becomes, which voting vendors have created or offered this kind of a system, and where has it been done before? So you end up having these state party-run elections where a a, a voting system is rented, Mm -hmm. and and it's going to be based on some kind of what they call telephonic, which, what does that mean? (laughs) It means some mix of of either a landline or, or, you know, Wi-Fi Mm digital-based voting platform. And so what this has meant in in other places is in Canada and in, in some Canadian municipal elections where they don't start at the top with a super high-stakes thing, like choosing a presidential nominee that's really local. Right. You know, they, they have companies that, that come in and do this, and, and in Utah, and also in Arizona, and other Democratic examples, too, but the, the, the Republican Party in Utah in, in 2016, right. um, they, they selected a vendor to come in and do this for them. So this vendor was called Smartmatic. They run elections all over the world. Mm. They run very sophisticated el- elections. But the Republican National yes, Committee... Yes, I know, I know Smartmatic, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> the Republican National Committee yeah. told the Utah State Party... Now, this is the party that, you know, was kind of obsessed with voter ID, right, Brad? Um, right. They, yeah. to, they told the Utah Party to use Eventbrite for their voter registration. Eventbrite is, a, is an app for, you know, events. Invitations, and, uh, sending out invitations, invitations. for events. Yeah, so, right. So... So the, the fellow who was the, uh, the director of elections in the state of Utah, who was a Republican, told me that they wanted to have 40,000 people caucus using this online platform. Right. On election day, 10,000 of those 40,000 couldn't get in. Why couldn't they get in? Well, <laughs> the voter registration app, Eventbrite, was not able to handle the processing of people who weren't registered Republicans. They didn't think about this. So we're not even talking about getting to the Smartmatic voting system. We're talking about people couldn't get in the front 
door. Ten thousand out of forty thousand. And and you mean do you mean so you mean literally the front door that they were literally using the, the app? If, if, if the people who did show up and they re- they relied on this electronic system, this uh, smartphone yeah, app, yeah. and so forth. Th- even that failed before the voting even began of any sort at the caucus. Yeah, they said they they ended up saying something like twenty. I forget the number. Mm-hmm. High 20,000 people, you know, ended up using it. And, of course, if you go to the study page or the case study page on Smartmatic's website, it's, everything was just super fine. And, and, and there's no mention about the smart, about this event, right thing. But I'm telling you that 10,000 out of 40,000 tried to get in and couldn't get in. So then, two years later, the state, now that was for a presidential That was party, 2016 um, back in Utah. Yeah, two years later, Republic, they tried yeah. to do, they, they chose another company. Yeah. And 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 that company, that company, you know, has a, has a different platform. And, and what happened there was a, a similar version. People didn't download the app, and then they went to download the app on Caucus Day, and it was like a run mm-hmm. on the Android and Apple Store. And then the the company's vendor, the company that was offering this voting system, yeah. They had programmed their, you know, back end mm-hmm. to resist, you know, phishing attacks, swarms yeah. of, of people. So they thought they were under attack and because they were getting all these requests for, these app, for their apps in numbers that they had never seen before. And that was because people just didn't download the app in time. And, and then, and they all did it on uh, a caucus day. And I think this is the one you right. cite, you cite someone um, a, a review at the uh, I guess the iPhone yeah. Apple Store of someone trying to download it who says, "Our county tried to use this system for a party convention yesterday. We had about fourteen hundred people trying to use this thing. It did not work. The back end failed utterly, and finally it was abandoned." Adding, "We used paper ballots instead." Uh, and he goes on to note that it also failed during many local caucus meetings a few weeks earlier. Out of 273 caucus meetings, it only worked for three of them. So, uh, Stephen, these are just uh, a few examples, and you list a lot more, and you recently... There are a lot more examples. Yeah. yeah so, so, the thing, yeah so, so here's the thing. Uh, you know, usually it takes several election cycles for the public to become familiar with any new election process. Mm -hmm. And usually when people try to introduce new systems, it's done in the least high-profile elections Mm -hmm. because, you know, when when things go wrong and things always come up. Right. Yeah, so for for example, when when people couldn't get that app in, in Utah in 2018, the Republicans thought they were under attack by the Russians. Now, now this is, re- I'm not making this up, but this is the way people think about this. So for the Democrats to start introducing a complicated new technology at, 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 you know, at these two, except well, what's more high stakes than the Iowa caucuses and then the, the first Western one, you know, Nevada? I mean, that's where Bernie lost in 2016. If he had won Nevada, it would have been a different story. Um, and so the thing is, what's interesting about these examples, and there are others there, are we're not even talking about the voting system, Brad. We're talking about human error and other things that actually precede that. Mm. And, and, and some, like, you know, technical snafus. Now, it's very, very interesting. In Canada, um, they have been using online voting and telephone voting in some municipal elections. Uh-huh. And, they are, and they're trying to phase out the telephone voting. And that's exactly what the people in Iowa, and they told me from Nevada last week, are, are looking at. But they're, you know, they're talking to vendors. They're not returning my calls anymore because the vendors are probably saying, don't talk to this guy. He might know too much. 
I mean, <laughs> yes. I'm not trying to sound vain. It's just that. Yeah. I, 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 well, I, you're, you're covering is, this. This is not being covered, uh, Steve. Anywhere. Uh, anywhere. anywhere. We, and we're talking about, I mean, you talk about high profile. Yes, this is the, a, a, a presidential election, but not just any presidential election. This is, you know, going up against uh, Donald Trump in 2020, one of the most crucial elections for this country, and not just one of the most crucial elections, but one where we may have some 20 candidates uh, yeah, or so, so on so the ballot. Yeah, so 20 candidates. Okay. So when I talk to people about how telephone voting works uh-huh. in, in Canada, and it's being phased out, by the way, because of this, a lot of people, the people in Iowa, when I speak to folks there, say, we envisioned a telephone-based thing so our seniors could just, you know, punch some buttons and do mm-hmm. it. What happens in Canada, and I was told this by some academics who literally study this, is that some people, some older people are hard of hearing. Mm-hmm. They don't hear the whole menu. They press the wrong button. All of a sudden, they get disconnected. They try to get in, and they're told that, they're, that they've already voted. Right. Or they pass the phone to somebody else, and they say, just do this for me. But, uh, Steve, I, I got to say, when I hear these descriptions, you know, uh, the, the problems that are caused just getting into the caucus, the problems that are caused with just old-fashioned landlines, all of that is even before we get to the idea of using the internet, using smartphones to uh, to track votes, even if yeah, things so yeah, go go well. I've got more examples. So, I've got more examples. So, so the thing about that is, once people tr- got in, in 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 Utah in 2016, yeah, I mean 2018 rather, there were some that did get in. By the way, they had to go through an authentication process um, with with that particular app. And the truth of the matter was. It's more rigorous than the, the, the strictest state voter ID laws. And, and people just, it was just too much, Brad. Even, even if you push to the side for, a, you know, the, mm-hmm. the cybersecurity issues and, and things like that, it was too much. People were not familiar with it, and they couldn't do it in time. They ran out of time. No, listen, I I understand. You don't have to convince me. This is why I'm worried. This is why I wanted to, uh, you know, talk to you because I know you have been covering this. You've been one of the few people in the nation who is actually paying attention to this. And, you know, I mentioned, Steve, at the top that uh, the DNC has just sort of barely been able to afford to get its own house in uh, in cyber order after the various uh, disasters during the 2016 presidential election. But now they're leaving this up to state democratic parties to decide uh, how they should handle it? I, I, is that wise? Do these parties even have the resources in the best of uh, cases, even if the technology well, okay, was up to talk. snuff? So here's the thing about this. Um, you asked the question, do the parties have the resources to do something like this? The answer to that is generally no. And this is a very, this is a potential sweet spot, if you will, for these companies that are willing to participate to demonstrate on a very high-profile way that their technology c- can work. Mm-hmm. And, and because th- these elections, these caucuses, they're not run by the government. They're run by the parties who are renting right. a system. The vendors themselves will, will, will do this stuff for next to nothing to try to you know, show for proof of concept. Right. The problem with this is... It's not just about a vote counting system. Now, I can t- we can talk about some other examples where the vote counting got messed up. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very interesting because th- the last article I did, w- which I am not known for writing stories about saying that this elections were stolen this way or that way, because mm-hmm. quite frankly, I haven't found evidence trails that have taken us there. Right. I found lots of dots. Right. And you know what I've learned over the years is, 
you got to do better than just connect the dots. But I wrote a story from Ontario. 2016, there was a new Conservative Party. It was a merger of several before that. And the vice premier was on the record telling me how electronic ballots were stolen. Yep. And filled out by the, the winning party's candidate. And, it's, and, Brad, it was no different. It was an electronic version of what we just saw in North Carolina. Yeah. And it was astounding to me. And, and I think that actually you can imagine something like this happening with really gung-ho volunteers for some of the, you know, the U.S. presidential candidates in some of these states. What did they do? It's so simple. In Canada, they, they, because it's a party-run election, yep. they have this tradition of, of going out and getting people to sign up to vote right. in their leadership elections. Well, they have to fill out forms so that where they verify enough of the you know, official identification stuff. The same stuff you would have here, by the way, voter mm-hmm. registration information. But there's one field in the official voter registration information that's here and in Canada that is not unchanging. And in fact, it's not verified. And what is that field? It's your email address. Yeah. So what this candidate did was he went to all these temples, you know, and, and religious institutions in basically the South Asian mm-hmm. communities from where people were new Canadian citizens, and they leaned on them to sign up to vote in their, in their party election. They, they got thousands of names. And when they took those forms back, they swapped in their the campaign's email addresses for the ones that the people put on those forms. And then when the party's contractors sent out the ballots, where did it go? It's just like that guy in North Carolina who intercepted the absentee ballots and filled them out. Yeah, they they sent the, and and I've got just a minute or two left here, Steve. I know, yeah, they sent, so all of those uh, ballots, the PIN numbers that uh, they're given for for their online voting didn't go to the actual voters. It went to some bad guys, uh, just the way those absentee ballots in North Carolina didn't actually go to the county headquarters. They went to the bad guys who uh, filled out, uh, filled in Republican uh, selections on those Ballots, but uh, one of the things uh, that I like very much about caucuses, actually, Stephen, is that they are overseeable uh, by everybody in the room. Everybody can see, you know, right then and there what the results are. There was a case back, I'm sure you remember, in 2012 in the Republican caucuses in Iowa. In Iowa, it was very, very close. The party declared Mitt Romney had won it out of just eight votes over Rick Santorum out of, you know, 120,000 votes at 1,700 different caucus sites. Um, But then when the results were sent from one of those caucuses back to party headquarters, there was an error. The party gave something like 22 votes to Mitt Romney, who actually earned just two votes. That ended up changing the results. Rick Santorum, we later learned out, actually won the Iowa caucuses. And it was because people at the caucuses were able to see what the results were, and when they saw that the uh, party headquarters got it wrong, they were able to say, no, no, here's the photograph of what the results actually were. We took it while we were there. This is all about to go away in every Democratic caucus. Well, no, Am I correct? Not, not, not exactly. This is what remains to be seen. The, the DNC's rules require that there's some kind of an audit trail. Now, what that means, Brad, is yet to be seen. I mean, and come on, it's like we're talking, so because what we're talking about is this, by the way, we're talking yeah. about having a ranked choice ballot for people who are not physically present. That has to be coordinated with the rounds of voting that happen in each of those, there's nearly seven, there's, I forget the number, there's nearly 1,700 individual, you know, precincts, like yeah. caucus. 
that that's a pretty big logistical coordination challenge nightmare not a challenge a nightmare steve and i gotta get out and uh, we will talk more about this as we uh, move towards these caucuses because i think this is insane i think the democratic party is playing with fire they may be doing it with the best of intentions But I see disaster ahead, and so I'm sending up a flare. Uh, It seems like you've been sending up a similar red flag with your uh, with your coverage. I'm trying to let people know what they're headed into. You know, I can't make. I'm not making these decisions, but I I don't think that they were aware. By the way, the Democrats that I talked to on the DNC of these other examples. Let's just put Uh, it that way. They literally did not know about that. Well, they. You know what? They should read Bradblog.com because we've been reporting on them for years (laughs) and warning them. They have no excuses. This is kind of alarming, but we will leave that uh, leave that there. We'll leave everyone alarmed and we'll pick this up on another day. Stephen Rosenfeld, I urge you to follow his work at the voting booth, which is you can find at independentmediainstitute.org. Uh, he also republishes at places like uh, Salon and Raw Story and elsewhere. Uh, a lot of places. Yeah. A lot of places. Keep an eye on this work. You can also follow him on the Twitters at srose. One four S Rose fourteen. Stephen, really appreciate you joining us today, and I suspect we'll be talking to you again in the not too distant future. Thanks so much. All right, I got to get out. I'm running late. My thanks <laughs> yes. to my producer Desi Doyen and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. Always good to hear from you. I am bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks and the Twitters. You can find, uh, follow, and share all of these burning red flags we try to put up every day. I am simply the Brad blog at both of those places. Please help spread the word. And as ever, my thanks to those of you who keep us on your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. One-time donations are greatly appreciated, as are monthly donations uh, automated. All you got to do is jump in there, choose any amount you want, and and you'll never have to think of it again. Set it and forget it, as Desi likes to say, (laughs) to help us stay on your public airwaves. All right, that's it. I got to go. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.